0: Please go ahead and do so. Either way, would you uh, consider taking a Bible and turning to Luke chapter 15? This morning, we want to read once again verses 11 through 32 of Luke chapter 15. And um, thank you guys for helping us to sing th- this morning. Appreciate. The work and the ability to call audibles, and uh, as we uh, gather and don't always know what the plans are going to be. So appreciate your abilities. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed from the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and And kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and, and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, and you've never given me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate And be glad, for your younger brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. Every word of yours is true, every word of yours is necessary for our lives. It's living, it's active. And we would pray, Father, that your word would work in our hearts by your spirit this morning, that we would see wonderful things about you, that we would see afresh our need for you and for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at some of the parables that Jesus spoke. And last week, we looked at this parable. And we're back, looking at it again, taking a second look at it. Remember, parables deal in comparisons. They, uh, in this parable in particular, it's the story of a of a father with two sons, and and the uh, the intent of that story, of the intent of this story, as Jesus describes it, is to make a comparison behind a a father with two sons, and what that might reveal to us in terms of spiritual realities and spiritual instructions. Last week, we looked at the older son from this passage. We just read about him again. And there's a sense in which, um, even though he's maybe the less famous of the two sons, uh, he's probably actually the one whom the parable is first and foremost about. The, The older son is is being compared to the scribes and the Pharisees who are really put out with Jesus. They're, they're grumbling against Jesus because earlier in this chapter, in chapters, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we're, we're told that they grumbled against Jesus because he received sinners and ate with them. And Jesus begins to tell really a string of parables or one long parable with three components to it of a lost sheep that was found and the the, the conclusion of that is in verse 7 he says just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance and then he tells another facet to the parable the parable of a lost coin and the conclusion to that parable is in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he goes deeper and unpacks more details, a, a more detailed story in what we've just read about the loving father and his two sons. And that when this younger son comes to his senses and repents and, and, and comes home. The, the father uh, does what was mentioned in verse 7 and what was mentioned in verse 10, uh, that there is a, a celebrative joy that erupts in the heart of the father and in his house over the son who was dead and is now alive, the son who was lost but now is found So we want to look now primarily at the younger son this morning as we take our second look at this parable. And in so doing, uh, this parable, this story tells us some very vital spiritual realities and some very precious spiritual instructions concerning the need for repentance and the nature of repentance. Now, I would suggest to you that the primary application of this text as we zone in on the younger brother, uh, the one who feels most obvious to us that he needs to repent, um, is that while I think we may be able to bring application from this text uh, about uh, maybe our earthly children who may be uh, experiencing a life of sinfulness, um, but the primary focus of the of our look at the younger brother this morning um, is what it teaches us about each of us, what it teaches us about all of us you see it's it's first. Pertinence and relevance is, is not so much about one's problem child or one's wild child or one's wayward child, but to suggest to us that before we came to Jesus Christ, each of us were actually the problem child, the wild child, the wayward child. And through the process of repentance, We come home to the Father, the God who made us, and there is great joy in the Father's house. Well, the story starts out, the father who has two sons, and the younger one, we're told in verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This is not a polite request. In that day and time, in that cultural setting, what this youngest son has done is horribly offensive. He has done more for, more than ask for some stuff. He, in fact, has basically... Reflected great disdain, and has essentially requested the very repudiation and demise of his father. In so doing, the younger son models for you and I uh, something of the of sin's essence. Sin is a choice. It's more than a choice. We'll get to that in a second. But sin is a choice um, that seeks to take the Father's good provision and, and actually utilize the Father's good provision in our lives the way we want to use it to ignore the Father, to deny the Father, to reject the Father, to turn from the Father, to, re- to ridicule the Father, to, to attack the Father, to, to live independently of God. We literally want to take the very air and oxygen that God so kindly keeps supplying to us, and we want to use that air and that oxygen to live how we want to live to ignore him and deny him and to reject him and to turn from him and to ridicule him and to attack him. We say, Father, give me your stuff, but butt out of my life. Every beat of the heart that you and I are experiencing this moment is a beat that is a kind gift from God. And thus that beat of the heart belongs to him. That beat of the heart is not to be utilized to devise ways to to lie and to cheat and to steal and to fornicate. For when we do so, we're saying, Father, give me your stuff, but butt out of my life. Go ahead and die for all I care. Now, this is a delusional way to live, but this is part of the of the condition of sense and is a delusional state of mind. For it is only by God's supply that you and I have the life and the resources of life to attempt to leverage a way of life that refuses to acknowledge our dependence upon Him. Well, he's holding us in his hands. We, being held together in his hands, are saying, I hold myself together. I'm my own man. I call my own shots. I do my own thing. I'm the boss of me. All of that is delusional thinking. It is why we are in complete dependence upon God that we delusionally attempt to assert our independence from God. And at its essence, that is what you and I need to re- of. What, whatever, whatever, and it's described here, uh, but whatever squanderous behaviors uh, that we must turn from, those list of squanderous behaviors are just setting atop a mindset that we must repent of. A mindset that says we can make life work apart from God. Really, where are you going to get that oxygen? What's going to keep that heart going? You going to do that? And yet, with that air and with that beat of heart, we have a notion and we make choices that we can live independently of God. And yet, it is only by His kindness to give us air, to give us continued hearts to beat. That we should respond to Him ever increasingly, every day, throughout the day, with a grateful thankfulness. And our lack thereof simply reflects that our choices to not respond with grateful thankfulness to our God, reflects that our hearts are governed by a condition that we have, a condition that's distorting our thinking, a condition that is disordering our desires, and therefore a condition that derails our choices so that we make tragically disastrous choices because we think we're wise enough, we're smart enough, we're pretty enough. Whatever it is that we do have, it's because we have received it from God. And therefore the beat of our heart, therefore with every breath that we inhale, there should be a response of grateful praise and thanksgiving to the God who gives us heartbeats oxygen. But the younger son says, I want my father's stuff, but I don't want my father. Life will never work that way. Life will never work apart from God, because first of all, life could never really be lived apart from God, but I'm talking about perceptionally. Life will never work apart from an ongoing, ever more sensitively aware consciousness that we need the Lord and what he supplies. Life will never work apart from God, and sooner or later, as this story shows us. Sooner or later, life without God will crash and burn. Now, it is a kindness. Oh, not always a nice kindness, sometimes a hard kindness, but it is a kindness when your life and my life Crashes and burns because we have attempted to live it apart from acknowledging God. It is better that life crashes and burns before we die rather than it crashes and burns after we die. Because after we die, the crash and burn at that moment is eternal. So it is a kindness. It is a kindness. That we see played out here. And when he spent everything and a severe famine arose in the country, he began to be in need. That's a severe, hard kindness. It was a kindness that he went to work for a guy who had him feed pigs, which, again, culturally is quite offensive. In that at that moment it is it it is something of a kindness that we read in verse sixteen, and no one gave him anything. Romans two four reminds us that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. We're going to see a beautiful portrait of repentance here in a moment. And, and yet, what I'm trying to get us to grapple with is something of the underbelly of this repentance, something of the pivotal turning point in this passage that, that when this guy comes to his senses, it's because God has been kind to him. God has been kind to him to grant him the opportunity to crash and burn in his attempts to live with God's stuff without a grateful acknowledgement of the God who constantly supplied him that stuff. And so the stuff dried up. It's a kindness. It's a kindness when you and I ran out of resources. It's a kindness when you and I, through our abuse and misuse of God's resources, that it dried up, that famine struck us, if you would, and that we began to acutely feel reality. That is our need for God. It's a kindness. It's a hard kindness. Let me go over here for a second. When someone's life is bottoming out as a result of squanderous living, And they begin to acutely feel some of the consequences of that squanderous living independent of God. Consider that God is at work. It is his kindness with the intent of leading that person to repentance that is circumstantially involved in bottoming out that person's life. I say that because sometimes you and I are not the ones that is descriptive of life bottoming out on, but you and I are witnesses of life bottoming out on somebody else. Somebody that we love and that we care for. We see them walking through self-inflicted, severe consequences. What do we do? Well, What do we do? We we need wisdom massively at that moment. On the one hand, we should never operate with an insensitivity toward people around us who are suffering greatly. And yet, the reason we need wisdom is why we shouldn't operate with an insensitivity toward them and their suffering, we should perhaps seek the Lord and not be too quick to alleviate that suffering. That suffering is a part of God's curriculum to take them a little bit lower. What if it is a part of his kindness, his hard kindness, to bottom them out? They ain't quite done yet. See, when it's true that we hurt when others hurt and when others hurt we it's good to want to help it's good and by the way write that one down if you need to but uh, but there are times that our attempts to help can actually result in greater hurt we seek the lord lord my my loved one is bottoming out their life is unraveling Lord, is this your kindness that is bottoming him out? Is is this your kindness that is creating a a, a temporary crash and burn? Lord, how can I get involved without circumventing what you may be doing? Do Do you see the complexity there? We want God to work his kindness in people's lives. And we don't want to be insensitive toward that. But we also don't want to be counterproductive in seeing God's full plans work out in someone's life. That God's hard kindness may be with the intent of leading them to Repentance. That's what I, I I would suggest to you. That's what's played out here. There's a hard kindness going on in this young man's life. He ain't got anything. Because he has blown everything. And that's I suggest to you an example of God's kindness. A hard kindness, but a kindness. Nonetheless, and this this serves as the pivot, if you would, of the story. Verse 17, it's, it's in the midst of bottoming out that God has brought him low that we see, but when he came to himself. Other translations, I think, aptly also read, but when he came to his senses, it was when he got in touch with reality when he when his delusion began to fade away and he began to see clearly how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but i perish here with hunger he came to his senses he came to himself How do sinners come to their senses? How do sinners who are blind and dead in their trespasses and sins, held captive by the devil to do his will, how in the world do sinners ever come to their senses? How in the world is repentance ever possible? Or it is necessary that you and I come to our senses. But how do we escape our delusional notions of independence in which we have lost all of our sense and all of our operational senses? I would suggest to you that a passage from Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26 are immensely helpful to us. They they fill in perhaps a part of the story that is left implied here in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 just simply describes operationally, uh, demonstrably what is happening, and that is this young man came to himself. This young man has come to his senses. How do sinners come to their senses? Paul explains it to Timothy And he says, first of all, something as to how Timothy should operate. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents uh, with gentleness. Just a full stop there for a second. That's what Timothy was to do. When Timothy interacted with people who had no sense who lived squanderously with the delusional thought that they could live their own, their own life independent of God. Uh, 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 Paul's words to Timothy is, Timothy, you don't, you don't shake sense into them. You teach sense into them. You don't quarrel. You are kind. You teach. You patiently teach. You patiently put up with their evil responses you correct them and point out their errors with gentleness and here's what god does as i continue now in second timothy 2 describing what only god can do that god may perhaps grant them repentance stop right there that god may perhaps grant them repentance Do you feel the implication of that? The implication of that is why, on the one hand, the scriptures are clear, and that is in Acts 17.30, God commands all men everywhere to repent. It is a duty of every person on the face of this earth to repent and turn to God. It is, therefore, an accountability feature that every human being on the face of this earth who refuses to This command to repent will be held accountable by the God who made them. And yet, the other side of this description is that while repentance is the obligation and duty of every human being because of the condition of our sin and how that colors our choices, that it takes an intervention by God, that that, that God himself uh, must come down, that this duty to repent requires an intervention of God's grace, that God's spirit must come down and get inside of us and change our hearts, that God may perhaps continuing what Paul says to Timothy, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may, here's it is, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being taken captive to do his will. You see, what adds further to the delusional state that we could live independently from God is that in our delusional state of perceptional independence from God, we are actually simply living in abject bondage to the devil. We are not free men and women apart from Jesus Christ. We are slaves to do the will and the beckoning of the evil one, to take the good resources that the Father has given to us, life and heartbeats and everything, and to squander them. Yet God is pleased to show up and work His Spirit into our hearts so that the binding around our hearts begins to be unshackled that new life is breathed into our souls, that our ears are open, our eyes are opened, that that, that 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 death is overcome by life. And just as Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. The Spirit of God says to dead sinners. And it's incredible what an infusion of spiritual life can do in a heart. It can cause our senses to see and to understand and to be alert. That is how sinners come to their senses. It's just another facet of God's. Kindness. He works sometimes circumstantial hard kindnesses in our lives, but he also reaches into our hearts and works a kindness of spiritual life into our hearts. And then that gives rise, and we'll say just just briefly, it gives rise to something of the nature of what repentance consists of. Verse 17 again, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now that's what he's rehearsed as he's going back. What am I going to say to my father? And as coming to his senses, being alert with reality, this is what he has understood. And what he has understood is something of the beautiful nature of true repentance. Repentance entails an admission of loss and forfeiture of rights before God. In other words, repentance never says to God, and I would just add horizontally when you and I have wronged each other and we need to repent. To each other for the wrongs. Then, then even in that context, when we have wronged other people, we forfeit and lose a significant kind and level of rights at that moment. We, we, but and but before the Father, how much more true is is that when we come before the Father, we don't come before the Father clamoring for whatever we think is our rights. He has given us life and breath and everything, and we've squandered that, and we have lost and forfeited our rights for any. Further writes, says, I'm not worthy to be your son. If I could just work in your house, if I could just be a servant, because I know that you even take good care of your servants. I just I just want to be a I have I have wronged heaven, I have wronged you. And, and, and therefore, I'm not coming back clamoring for, right? This is, this is repentance on, on display. Whether it's repentance before God or whether it's when you and I need to repent before each other because we've wronged each other. This also reflects the grace that abounds in true repentance. Repentance. For notice what happens then. He's rehearsed it one way in verse 17. Notice the similarities and yet the interruption of what happens when he finally gets home and he starts talking to his, his father. I think that one's there in verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop! The father interrupts. Boy, be quiet. That's a good boy, be quiet, by the way. He never fully got out the rest. Treat me as one of your hired servants that never got out before the father said, another kindness, another beautiful interruption. When we relinquish our rights before the Father in genuine repentance of returning to him because he has brought us to our senses, what I want you to see is that when we let go of our rights before the Father in repentance, we are given something even better than rights. We are given a birthright. We are given the declaration that we are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are adopted into his family and we are given all of the blessings of sonship. Any and all who see their need for the Lord Jesus Christ and for what he did on the cross. Any and all who feel acutely their need for Jesus and and humbly come to him and depend only in him, our God will in no way turn you aside. Our God, in fact, will collect you and pull you into himself. Our God will adopt you as one of his well-loved children. Our God will, inf- will flood you even further with his spirit. Our God will rearrange your entire identity. Our God will give you a whole new destiny. Such is what the Father does for those who experience the grace of repentance. We'll turn to Christ. Trust only in Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that your word teaches us about ourselves, about our true need for you, and about the abundant supply of your grace and your mercy in Christ Jesus. So help us to see Jesus clearly this morning. Help us to feel acutely our need for Jesus this morning. And help us to gladly let go of whatever we think our rights are so that we might walk in the birthright of being a son and daughter of the living God. For we pray this in Jesus' name.